Hello and welcome to the next edition of Lights in Europe. I hope you're having a beautiful pre-Christmas period. And now that we are all trying to bring a bit more peace uh, and quiet into our lives and our households, I thought it would be interesting to look into what the European Commission is working uh, in the area of religions and people of different religious backgrounds in Europe. So in this edition, we speak to Katarina von Schnurbein, who is uh, the one and only and the first European Union's coordinator on combating anti-Semitism. So in this episode we speak a lot about anti-Semitism, the volume, the scale of the problem, the reasons, the solutions, what the European Union is doing in this area together with the communities representing um, one, the Jewish community, but also in the broader context of dialogue with uh, people of various religious backgrounds. So listen to what Katarina has to share. And also, you might also hear her speaking Czech because she has a very interesting story of her engagement in Czech Republic and studying the language and why uh, the engagement with Slavic languages was triggered by the fall of the Berlin Wall and liberation in Eastern Europe. So I'm sure you will enjoy it. And if we don't speak afterwards. Merry Christmas! Hello Katarina, welcome to Lights on Europe. Hello, thanks to be meeting, here. Thank you very much for accepting the invitation. We are meeting in a very special pre-Christmas time where many people are obviously thinking about their values and how they can behave differently in their society and so that's why I thought it would be a good opportunity to tap a little bit into how the Commission is engaged in the religious space. Now, your position is a bit special because you were appointed the first coordinator on behalf of the European Commission to combat anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. So maybe share with us why is this important? Why does Commission go into this kind of policy area? We know that it's a big uh, principle in the European integration process, in the treaty that everybody is free to have their their beliefs and their religion. Um, so what is there in terms of the policy need? Why are we engaged with the other religions? Mm-hmm. Yes, b- I believe that um, when it comes to uh, anti-Semitism, actually we are um, beyond uh, religion, uh, first of all. I think one has to look at this in a very differentiated uh, way. The, the Jewish community is very diverse um, from uh, religious, orthodox, ultra-orthodox, liberal um, Jews, two very secular ones. But they have um, many cultural aspects in common, as do many people, peoples, yeah? Um, and uh, uh, and so uh, when it comes to the fact that um, the Jewish community, the Jewish people that have been in Europe for over 2,000 years, they are feeling at the moment that they are under pressure. And we know it, there have been uh, physical attacks, there have been terrorist attacks on uh, Jewish um, communities, buildings, on synagogues, on schools, but also on the Hippa Kasher in 2015. Um, and it was actually after Charlie Hebdo and the attack on Hippa Kasher, and then later also there was an attack on the synagogue in Copenhagen. Um, when my position was created in 2015. Because um, the the Commission believes very strongly that it is unacceptable to have a situation where whole groups are feeling under pressure and uh, feel that they are being uh, uh, attacked 
just for the mere fact of belonging to that group. It's not just with regards to the Jews, it's with regards to all uh, groups that have a certain uh, identity that unites them. So I assume that there is evidence underpinning this kind of decision. You were previously, before you were appointed to this position, you were also working on supporting dialogue with other religions and the religious communities. So why would the commission choose to focus on Jews or why would we choose this one community as opposed to the others? Uh, is there Actually, I think we have to. I have to explain a bit. So before, I d indeed, I was responsible for the dialogue that the commission has with religious organizations and churches um, more generally, and also the non-confessional um, people, so um, humanists, for example. Um, the aim of that dialogue was to hear from them, as they usually have a wider view on society. So they are not just about promoting their own interests, but see uh, society as a whole, for example, when it comes to um, tackling unemployment, to social inclusion, to intergenerational solidarity, but also the economic crisis um, that, that we saw uh, in 2008 and follows. And all of that, the, um, the religious and non-confessional organizations accompanied very closely. So. Uh, the Commission's dialogue with those organizations was there in order to gain insight into you know, what, after all, large groups of society think about certain policy issues. Um, the fight against anti-Semitism is a more general one. Um, and by the way, I was appointed together with a coordinator on combating anti-Muslim hatred. There are also people here who deal with uh, Roma inclusion. There are people who deal with uh, discrimination against uh, um, homosexuals. You know, th there so is a question on this. Well, on disability. Well, we the setup is different in in the different um, units, but uh, still, um, all the different forms of discrimination of racism, of xenophobia are tackled. Because um, when the European Union was created, in fact, after the Second World War, um, oh, one thing was very clear that, that we did not want to go back down that road of excluding whole groups. We, we had seen the Holocaust. Um, we, we had seen what, uh, you know, populism and um, racism can do to this continent. And it was the clear will of the founding fathers to overcome uh, this, uh, this threat. And so um, equality and non-discrimination and democracy and rule of law, these are fundamental pillars of the European Union that are essential. And in that sense, when you see anti-Semitism rise, it's always a threat to Europe as a whole. It doesn't just concern the Jewish people. Of course, it concerns them uh, f first and foremost because, because they are the, the target. But it shows that something bigger is going on in society, that um, people um, distance themselves from what they perceive as the other, that they prefer to, um, you know, keep their own space, even at the expense of 
um, harming others. Uh, so it's it is uh, it's a sign that there are issues in society that need to be tackled that endanger democracy and uh, society at large. And therefore, um, we are convinced that it's not just you know, f for the Jews to address anti-Semitism. It's really for society at large and for the institutions to um, put measures in place together with the member states um, to ensure that Jews and all other groups of uh, um, people that can be uh, discriminated because of belonging to that group um, feel safe. So I was wondering what's the sizing, scaling of this problem actually, because obviously we've seen the attacks, but also looking at Eurobarometer and all kinds of studies which show the, the horrendous size of, yes. of the problems and of the, the fear that these people are yeah. living in. I was wondering to which degree, um, yeah, to what's, the, what's the scale of understanding of the size of the problem, because maybe part of it is also that we see more of it because we finally dedicate more resources and more attention to it. So how do the people actually feel? So, the, the, the so I think there are two things. Yeah. One is um, that we polled 16,500 Jews across Europe to find out their perception of anti-Semitism. And there we see that nine out of 10 say anti-Semitism is on the rise and is my number one problem. So before the fear of unemployment or health issues, they, they are afraid of uh, experiencing anti-Semitism, not necessarily attacks, physical attacks, but also remarks or an environment where they don't uh, feel at ease. Then there is the perception of the general population on how they perceive anti-Semitism. And we thought that it would be significantly lower, and it is lower, of course, but half of the people across the EU say, anti-Semitism is a problem in my country. And that's actually very high. So, you know, if half of the population sees something as a problem, usually politicians act. Um, and I believe that, you know, that, that shows that people also perceive this rise, um, even if they don't necessarily know a lot of Jewish people, but simply the fact that there is a rise of incidents. And as you say quite correctly, that these incidents may become more visible because we are now putting in place also better monitoring systems, also better reporting structures um, and better recording um, in among the police. Um, so it becomes more visible. But the fact that people perceive this, I think, uh, is worrying, and, but also shows that there is a seismograph in society that sees this threat. So as a person who's responsible for combating anti-Semitism on behalf of the European Commission, how do your days look? What do you work on in terms of the policy interventions and the solutions that we can offer to this community other than a dialogue, I guess, with the community to start? So indeed, uh, listening to the communities and reaching out to them was uh, at the start of my work in 2015. And it showed two uh, issues that are key to uh, them feeling uh, at ease. One is to recognize all forms of anti-Semitism. So what we have seen in the past, of course, is um, that because of the history of Europe, right-wing anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism coming from racist side, or also Holocaust denial um, that comes from um, 
the right-wing extreme right corner is rather easily recognized as being anti-Semitic. It's more difficult when it comes to uh, left-wing anti-Semitism, so anti-Semitism that hides behind anti-Zionism, so criticism towards uh, Israel and um, reflects the action of the government of Israel, for example, on the Jewish community here, holds them responsible for um, what the government in Israel is doing, or denies Israel the right to exist, compares Israel to the Nazis. You know, these kind of things are clearly anti-Semitic, but it's a very complex uh, area and therefore um, sometimes more difficult uh, to dismantle these biases. Then we have anti-Semitism also coming from within the Muslim community. Um, that's also not, uh, not so easy because on the one side we, it's clear, you know, we do not want to stigmatize another group. <laughs> there is, doesn't make sense to stigmatize the Muslims in order to fight anti-Semitism. That would be complete nonsense. But on the other hand, we know that the lethal attacks that have happened in Europe on um, European uh, on, on Jewish premises to a large extent have come from within Muslim extremism, from Islamism, from Salafism. And so it's important to also acknowledge that and address that. And then of course you have conspiracy theories that are right in the middle of society. The idea that Jews control the world, that they have too much money, that they control the banks or the media, you know, that is something that you can find almost anywhere in society um, and uh, it also needs to be addressed. And that also can lead to anti-Semitism without Jews. People who don't even know Jews can still hold these very strange anti-Semitic prejudices. And there we're in the territory of education, media, free media, disinformation campaigns and regulating <laughs> platforms which is going to exactly. be a big thing in the future. So I'm sure that you're also working a lot with the colleagues who are looking into disinformation campaigns on, online which yeah. must, I guess, be a big part of the problem, right? Yes, um, information campaigns, but also um, taking down hate speech, because in, in Europe, instigating hate speech or in, uh, hate speech inciting to uh, violence is illegal. And what is illegal offline should also be illegal online. And therefore, it is unacceptable that this kind of uh, speech is placed on the net. And what uh, Commissioner Jourova has done um, in the last mandate was to create a code of conduct with the big IT companies, Twitter, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, uh, now Instagram, and many others have joined, for them to agree that within 24 hours they remove illegal hate speech that is flagged to them. And we've seen a significant improvement there. In the beginning, when we started in uh, 2016, only 28% of illegal hate speech was removed. And now we're at 72%. So it's hate speech that is flagged. Of course, there is much more out there that is not flagged. Um, and I believe that uh, this field will be an important one also in the next commission, because we need to keep the internet a place where everybody 
wants to be, uh, you know, where we feel, uh, where we don't think the whole time, do I have to block this person now because I cannot bear uh, the comments anymore. So I think we need to have certain, um, you know, rules uh, in order to make sure that we, uh, we have a place uh, of communication uh, as it was originally intended. Um. What is your goal or dream for the next five years of the new European Commission? What would you like to achieve in your function? Well, you know, a dream, of course, is that anti-Semitism can be not only um, contained, but in the end can be rolled back. So that we have a situation where not only we decide on certain policies on European level, but that these policies also have an effect on the Jewish community, that they feel safer, that they see their future in Europe. At the moment, four out of ten say they've thought about leaving in the last five years, which is a very high number. Yeah, it's a very which is supposed to be the safest one on the planet. Yeah, and uh, and so uh, to to come to a situation where the Jewish community can feel free to live their lives as they would like to live it. They can decide to wear a kippah or not wear a kippah, send their children to Jewish schools or to public schools without having b to be afraid that they are being harassed. You know, so uh, I think this is, this is really what I would uh, like to see. Uh, I know that five years is a very short uh, span for that, but um, already in the past four years we've managed to achieve quite a bit, um, you know, I didn't mention the the second aspect that was um, very important um, for the Jewish community, and that is in terms of security. A lot has happened in terms of uh, security, and also now uh, there is a program to ensure the security of places of worship, for example, here by the Commission. Yeah, so um, to to see that there is a there's a situation where Jews feel safer. In the end, of course, we don't want to need security. But at the moment, unfortunately, we need it and therefore it needs to be put into place and it's not for the communities to pay for their own security, as is sometimes the case at the moment, that they have to pay for their security cameras, for, you know, for security guards and so on. It's the role of the states. And so what we have done in order to achieve this, so that what we have decided at European level, and by the way, all member states have agreed in 2018, in December, uh, through a council decision, so-called council decision, uh, by unanimity that they want to uh, address uh, anti-Semitism um, more forcefully. And they agreed on 17 different actions. Um, and now we want member states to adopt these actions into national strategies national action plans on how what to do in concrete terms. In some cases, it may be to revise the curricula, to train uh, teachers better. In others, it's more about uh, data recording. Uh, we have, for example, uh, an annual overview of anti-Semitic incidents in member states, and there are six member states that do not report any incident. I hope it's true, but most likely it's not true. Yeah? So we have to um, improve the data recording. Um, in other cases, it's about training of the police, of uh, state prosecutors on what anti-Semitism is. Um, then it's about the um, 
recognizing addressing anti-Semitism in sports. I mean, there are a lot of different areas where in the member states things can happen. So that's where your expertise of uh, knowing the differences across the member states comes in. You're a big expert in Central Europe. You've studied Slavonic studies and you mm -hmm. worked for Commissioner Spidla. So I yes. hear I you've got <laughs> excellent Czech, uh, Czech knowledge, Czech language uh, speaking level. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, I, in terms of, I mean, this is not the question of anti-Semitism, it's more uh, yes. coming back to your previous role of uh, working with the religious communities. Slovakia and Czech Republic are very different in terms of their religious True. orientations. <laughs> it's more from a Catholic extreme to a more uh, atheist um, um, yeah, beliefs or backgrounds of, of, the, of the country, of the society. And so I'm wondering to which degree this understanding of countries like uh, Czech and Slovak mm. Republic or of the region actually helps you in doing this work and, and working with the national versions of the communities mm -hmm. that you're working with because I guess there's no more um, specific policy when it comes to like identity questions of European citizens. The, the differences couldn't be bigger yeah. than when it comes to these kind of questions. And I think it's very important that we recognize these differences and um, that we do not interfere. And in fact, um, it is even uh, part of the dialogue that we have with religions that we say we do not question the way you know, either the structural setup is, for example, between the church and the state or the way um, religion is being uh, lived in the public space, yes or no, you know, all these kind of things are not part of the dialogue because, uh, because we um, fully respect the sovereignty of the member states and, uh, and of the society. So you understand um, the structure as is and you work with what is. Yes, but I think it's very important for us to understand what the differences are. And, um, for me, for example, I grew up very closely uh, to the Czech border in, uh, in the Bavarian forest, um, so 20 kilometers from Jelesna Ruda. And um, can, the can you explain what is Jelesna Ruda? Jelesna Ruda? That's a little border town <laughs> in the Czech very Republic. west uh, of the Czech Republic. <laughs> and um, for us, the fall of the Iron Curtain 30 years ago um, was also liberation. Uh, although we were uh, in Western Germany and, uh, and of course we could travel and so on, but, um, but uh, suddenly this, the opening and the fact that you could go to the other side of, uh, of the border and you know, get in touch with people uh, was very liberating. And um, actually my parents through the church um, and through a pastor that had um, been in the Czech Republic before, a British person, um, got in touch with Czech um, Christians uh, quite quickly after the fall of the um, Iron Curtain. And um, so we established, and actually my original Czech knowledge came through church songs. <laughs> And then I started uh, studying Czech because I thought, you know, I might as well go to Prague um, when I finished school and so. So this, for me, this has always been an interesting aspect also. So your passion, your decision to go for the Slavonic studies was somehow built out of the experience of the liberation? 
Yes, definitely. I've definitely. Exactly. When I finished school, and then I went. Uh, I after I had finished school, I w went to Prague for a year uh, to learn Czech uh, at Charles University, and then I kept Czech um, as my my main Slavonic language. Um, and my master was on. Uh, Život Sviesdo, so Life with a Star, um, which already had uh, interestingly <laughs> also a Jewish connection uh, at the time by Yiri Weil. Um, and uh, that was in Oxford, how, however, then, so then I was um, at a different university. But so this uh, it's been interesting uh, for me to, to look into these societal aspects as and well. And then you also worked uh, in Prague at the representation of the European Commission, right? And then yeah. you were working yeah. for a Czech politician. So yeah. it's a pretty different And I worked again for a Czech politician. Now uh, it was uh, Miss Jodova, uh, uh, together with First Vice the President Timmermans, yes. who was responsible for the fight against anti-Semitism in the Juncker Commission. So uh, there has always been some sort of Czech connection. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I wonder another identity feature that uh, pops into my mind is that you're a woman, whereas I would assume that many of the leaders of these communities are <laughs> men. One of the challenges of this work is that it's hyper-politically sensitive and you have to be very skilled in what kind of nuanced language you're using in these negotiations. Is it possible that when you speak to representatives of communities who can be a bit more conservative or traditional, that it becomes a challenge in some way that you're a woman? That I've never experienced. It's true that many times I I've been the only woman in the room, especially um, when you talk to religious representatives, bishops' conferences, or you know the conference of rabbis or something like that. Um, that having said that, there are also women rabbis uh, in the liberal field. I don't uh, want to to be too narrow on this, but. Um, uh, I have never experienced that the fact that I was a woman was an issue. And uh, I, I believe that actually, uh, you know, the, the fact that to maybe be a bit stereotypical, as women we try to um, build bridges and be very inclusive in conversations and bring in um, different views. Um, I hope I'm not too stereotypical, but I, I do believe that this is, a, this is um, often a quality uh, that, um, that women have, um, helped to, uh, to overcome also differences in this dialogue. Because, uh, you know, there are very different views. And uh, <laughs> for example, in the beginning, when I, when I started a round table, one organization would say, well, if they are coming, we are not coming. And, uh, and so I had in the end five organizations who told me that. And I said, I will be there. If you want to come, please, you come. And if not, you don't have to. And in the end, they all came. And wow. now we see that actually um, uh, the actions different organizations do are very complementary. They don't interfere in each other's territory because you know, they, they operate on different uh, in different areas, different grounds, some more grassroots, some more on political level. It works very well. And um, I guess they can also be learning from each other, disregarding of which... And they even cooperate now, you know. So, um, no, I think that this is uh, actually a very positive. 
Excellent. aspect. So the last question is that really now that we are in the pre-Christmas period, is there something special that comes to your mind when it comes to even boosting even more this feeling of harmony that we will all be thinking about and maybe how each of us can be of contribution to uh, combating or minimizing the tendencies that we want to not see? Uh, around ourselves? Is there something well, personally, more we can do, each of us? I, I believe um, that a big challenge and a big responsibility for all of us is uh, to speak up ag against injustice when we see it in our own immediate environment. And Christmas is a period where the whole family comes together. You know, some have see not seen each other for some time. So there may be different views around the table and I believe it's important to um, to make sure that when there are issues even in the family where it's most difficult or in the sports club or in um, the parents association of the school you know or very really or the the political party where one may be member you know to to not just let hate speech pass or or speech that looks down on other on on groups because that's easy and we've seen it a lot you know the the right points to the islamists and the left points to the right um as being responsible for populism for hatred um for antisemitism but the most important and the most difficult is to as we say, sweep in front of your own door, yeah, to make sure that uh, your own house is in order. And that's not easy, but I think it's important and it needs a bit of civil courage. Um, but it, it's that aspect that in the end will create a change in the view uh, of society on the other, to have a more inclusive view, to not see the other as a threat, but rather as complementary. And one more bonus question that I wanted to ask you is how do you manage, you have four kids and I've been wondering how, what is your efficiency hack, how do you manage to combine this kind of very exposed public function with the travels that you have to be doing with the negotiations with the communities and with taking care of your family? It's an interesting question and I wonder whether you would ask it to a man. <laughs> but uh, indeed, I think it's a balancing act. Um, First of all, I have a very supportive husband uh, who um, takes also a lot of responsibility with the children in the household. Um, we also involve the children in the sense that we talk about, I talk about what I do and they are very interested in it. So they see that it makes sense in a way and they themselves um, are somehow involved in this. Um, become little activists in Well, aspects. I'm not saying activists, but um, they, they are interested in, um, for example, they have a few Jewish friends. And when you personalize it and you say, you know, just imagine your, um, your friend getting hit over the head just because he's, he wears a kippah. Of course, they understand immediately that it's totally unjust. Yeah? Um, and then, of course, I, I have a lot of help also. Uh, so I think um, it's the these um, different aspects together that then make it work. We have to plan well and um, and use the time that we have also with the children 
in a in a good way. So this is one more big thanks to all men who enable women like Absolutely. you to do their job. <laughs> so thanks again. Thank you. <laughs>